Hi, this is Charles Dreeby from Blind Ambition Management, and you're listening to Talking Blues. Your name, Dreeby, where does that come from? That is a name that originated on Ellis Island, which is the main immigration point uh, in New York and was back in the early 20th century when my great-grandfather came over. He was a Lebanese Catholic and uh, he didn't speak English well, so when they asked him his name, uh, the family story is that he said Khalil Budrebi, which means I am Charles from the region of Drebi, and that's how the name uh, began. And so, Basically, everyone in America with that name that spells it the way that I do, uh, that my family does, is related to me. Wow. Did he wind up going to Atlanta after that? or No. That... He came in through Pennsylvania and uh, moved into the Pocono Mountains of Pennsylvania. And most of my father's family is still located there. Uh, my father came south in the 50s uh, in the service and uh, met my mother, who was uh, a South Georgia Baptist. And so he was a Lebanese Catholic. She was a South Georgia Baptist. And uh, the rest is history. <laughs> wow. So you've lived all your life in Atlanta? I've in lived Georgia? in Atlanta all my life, except uh, when I was living in New Orleans, uh, which is where I went to college. And then a uh, a year or two in other places, but primarily Atlanta or New Orleans, and I, I still uh, have an apartment in New Orleans uh, that I go to as often as possible. <laughs> I, I can mm -hmm. imagine. <laughs> Tell me about your love of music. How did that begin? Well, that was mostly uh, through my father. I mean, first of all, I, I was born and grew up in, a, in the South, and uh, the South is, is sort of the cradle of, uh, of popular music, and my dad was a blues fan and a jazz fan, and he took me to some shows early on. Uh, my very first show that he ever took me to was uh, I probably 10 years old, 11 years old. Uh, it was a blues bill uh, with T-Bone Walker, Big Mama Thornton, and Eddie Cleanhead Benson. And, uh, wow. and I also remember him taking me to see B.B. King uh, that was at a venue where he knew some people and, uh, we went backstage and got to meet BB. And I remember that his hands were actually bloody from playing his guitar. And that, that impressed me greatly. And I got an autograph and I kept that for many years. <laughs> so blues has been in your life for a long time. Well, blues and roots music, I guess you would say, uh, you know, in the, I grew up primarily in the seventies. Those were my high school and college years. And, of course, during that time, uh, rock and roll was very influenced by the blues, uh, Jimi Hendrix, the Rolling Stones. Um, most of these people had roots in blues. And uh, I also, you know, got into folk music, um, maybe people like Neil Young or people like that who, uh, and then I you know, later found out were borrowing traditions from even earlier artists, uh, and particularly from the British Isles. So I also 
got into jazz music, uh, which served me well when I went to college. Uh, I got involved in the radio station there and had a jazz radio show. And as I mentioned, I went to college in New Orleans. So between living in New Orleans for four years in the uh, late 70s and and being a part of the radio station, there was a lot of musical education going on, and I didn't know it at the time. I didn't realize that uh, every that was the first time, my first time really, you know, living away from home. I didn't realize how unique New Orleans was, and all the things that were going on at that time. So, I was really blessed in that in that way, and got to see great music. And I would say that you know that's sort of the core of the music that I love would be maybe the music that you would see at the New Orleans Jazz Fest. It's, it's, a little, it's a little jazz, it's a little blues, it's a little gospel, it's a little roots, um, you know, and that, that's sort of the core of my musical taste, uh, a little bit of rock and roll, and um, that's, that's the clients that I represent to this day. But you never played music. Yourself. No, I didn't. Uh, just, just an educated listener. Um, when you went to university, what did you go for? Uh, no, I went. Uh, <laughs> I went to uh, because I was supposed to go. I wasn't really sure what to do. I ended up getting a degree in history and English, and um, I think the only thing that really bears on the music part there is uh, that in my history major, we had to focus on specific. Uh, sub-majors or sub-categories, and I focused on the American South, and I actually had a class with the president of the university, who was actually a a Southern scholar himself, Sheldon Hackney was his name, and so this was an upper-level class. We met in the president's office. There was about eight of us, and I remember that my uh, paper that I turned in at the end of the semester was traditional themes in Southern rock music. (laughs) (laughs) So I examined how uh, some of the traditional themes of Southern literature that had been, had been going on for many years from uh, George Washington Cable to Mark Twain to more uh, William Faulkner, et cetera, uh, were also reflected in, in Southern rock, because at that time, this was the late seventies, Southern rock was huge and really, uh, was, um, you know, a big cultural force on the airwaves and everything else. And, you know, I guess the Allman brothers were the most successful of those bands and they obviously stayed around a long time and influenced a lot of people. As a Southerner, what did Southern rock mean to you? Well, I think it was a pride thing. I mean, uh, it's easy to forget now, uh, but in the uh, 60s and 70s, the South had a had a chip on its shoulder. Uh, they had an attitude that you know that everyone looked down on them, and and there were reasons, uh, you know, for for some of that. Uh, luckily, I grew up in Atlanta, which um, was in the relative terms progressive. Uh, right compared to somewhere like Birmingham, Alabama, which 
was essentially the same size of it as Atlanta in 1960, but Birmingham took one path and Atlanta took another. And uh, so, um, you know, I think Southern rock kind of gave Southerners uh, an identity uh, that they could be proud of. Um, A lot of the themes in that were about being independent, uh, maybe going back to the land and also then just musically there was the combination of all of these great elements of southern music which is really the cradle of american music you know i mean uh, the allman brothers combined jazz which uh, originated primarily in the south blues which originated primarily in the south gospel and and filtered through you know a bit of a rock and roll vibe which also uh, primarily originated in the south so that was that was a, 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 a something Southerners uh, could be proud of in the late seventies. And, and so, at this point, do you think Southern rock still exists? Well, I think it's been it's been uh, internalized in a way. There's still fans of Southern rock. Uh, I mean, there are bands that are sort of uh, spinoffs of the Almond Brothers. I was actually involved in a project as a co-producer. And uh, we are trying to get this project on the road, but it, it's called Big Band of Brothers, and it's big band versions of Allman Brothers songs. Oh, I heard about and, this. Yeah, it's it, it, it was really great. Uh, it it most of the songs are instrumentals, but we had two vocal guests on there, being uh, Ruthie Foster and Mark Broussard. Wow. And. Um, but it's primarily big band versions of Allman Brothers songs. And in the course of this, I, I spoke to the uh, Allman Brothers manager. I mean, the, the band no longer exists, but he still manages, you know, their live recordings and all their different business aspects that still survive them. And, um, and he said, man, we get so much stuff, you know, Allman Brothers related uh, music sent to us and he goes, but this is really good. He said, this is serious quality and it is serious quality. A, I won't take a lot of credit for uh, the idea. It was a guy named John Harvey in Alabama, but he he uh, commissioned the charts mostly from university professors, music professors, and he gathered the band and um, it's a great, great record. It came out on uh, New West Records last year and we're definitely going to submit it for a Grammy this year. And uh, so it combined a lot of things that I have been interested in my life, including jazz uh, and the Allman Brothers, great musicianship and a lot of uh, roots music in one package. Wow, that's cool. Um, You became a a lawyer, I believe entertainment law? Well, yes, I uh, finished my... uh, undergraduate degree at Tulane University and then I uh, took a year uh, off in between and uh, actually was working in Washington DC under uh, in the Jimmy Carter years under uh, one of his appointees and then I went to law school in Athens Georgia at the University of Georgia and again I was in the right place at the right time Uh, this was the years of Athens music sort of uh, bubbling up. I was at the first show that REM ever did. Wow. 
I uh, got REM their first gig in Atlanta. They they became friends, and I just I got them a, a couple of different gigs in Atlanta, um, and just generally um, had had more musical experiences in Athens while I was in law school for three years. I also continued my radio uh, work there. Did a radio show, um, so I was a little outside of the uh, mainstream of law school students, but uh, it was, it was, a, it was a great time. And uh, it was interesting to see uh, a band that I saw, you know, play the first time they'd ever played in public become an arena act. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? They did very well. Right. And they incorporated a lot of, uh, you know, I mean, it was, it was a lot of uh, rock and roll, but it was, there was, you know, there was a lot of, uh, southern southernness in their music uh, i know in like in losing my religion uh there's a mandolin that starts that song off and right. um i wouldn't say they were a roots rock band they were more of a rock band but uh but uh it was it was it had its southern vibe let's put it that way you know i've had i've had discussions with my friends about southern rock and you know obviously growing up i, I think we're about the same age you know, you obviously we were affected by that music, but I often wonder about the definition of Southern rock because I don't think it's just people from the South. Am I correct to assume that? Like, well, it's not I, every I would band. agree with that. I would agree with that in the sense that, you know, when Southern rock arose, it had a point of view, right. uh, and and so that part is pretty uniquely Southern. But the musician musical part, that's American music, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, that's, uh, like I said, that's, that's jazz, that's blues, that's rock, that's gospel. That's, that's all American music, you know? So, um, and somebody said, uh, I read something the other day that said, you know, Southern rock is still around. It's just called country now. <laughs> there's, there's, a, I mean, you know, you're kind of rocking country artists have yeah, a yeah. lot, a big debt to Southern rock, maybe not your balladeers or your pop country people, but your country rock artists uh, owe a big debt to Southern rock, no question. That's for sure. Tom Petty, Southern rock or not? Well, he was from Florida, and he was from the Panhandle, which is a very Southern uh, uh, part of Florida. (laughs) The most Southern part of Florida is the North part of Florida. But, uh, yes, I think he was. Uh, I mean, he obviously, you know, if you had to cite one influence on Tom Petty, it would be the birds. Right. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and then, but then if you start looking closely into that, you know, the birds, uh, they had a lot of their songs were based on, uh, British folk melodies and, um, and even the Bible, you know, so one, one could say that the birds had their own, uh, influences that, uh, were, that were Southern in nature too. Well, that's for sure. Um, when you decided to pursue law, was it entertainment law that you went into or was it corporate law? They didn't really have entertainment law in those days. I I went to law school in 1979 and there was really no such thing as entertainment law. At least I didn't know about it. Um, (laughs) I knew I liked music. I knew a bunch of bands. I spent a lot of time and energy and, uh, money listening to music, um, and 
uh, I probably would have been interested if I'd have known it existed. Now, if, if I lived in Los Angeles, I probably would have known it existed. But I don't think there were, I think there was maybe one entertainment lawyer in Atlanta at that time. Um, so it just wasn't anything that was on our radar. And so I went to law school. I got a job I, uh, as a, in, in litigation, which is basically, you know, trying cases. I was working for the man. I didn't like it very much. And um, I left that job after a few years and started working with my dad, who was also a lawyer. Had a little more, a little more freedom there and a little more uh, interest, but it was still just law. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so uh, I guess that was, you know, between the years of like 82 when I graduated and about 1990, I was just practicing law. But uh, around 1990, I guess I would, I guess uh, I was unhappy with, you know, what I was doing, but didn't really know, you know, why or, or what the problem was. I was, I was, you know, I was on the outside, it looked successful to people, but it just wasn't fulfilling to me. So how did uh, you feel? Just like, like well, I, I think I, I think I I felt somehow unfulfilled and somehow trapped. Right. And so uh, I started medicating that, which I think a lot of people do when they feel those feelings. And I was drinking, using drugs and stuff like that. And uh, in 1990, my family actually had an intervention on me and I uh, went to a treatment facility and I got sober. When they had the intervention on you, did it surprise you? Like, did you know that it was an issue? Uh, I knew it was an issue, but like most people that are in the throes of alcoholism or addiction, I didn't want really to be called out on it. Right. You know, uh, I didn't, I didn't want, I, you know, I just, I, I, my, my mantra was I wanted to be left alone, but I wanted to be left alone to drink and do drugs, you know, and that was not getting me anywhere. It was just uh, taking me down. But I mean, I'm lucky that I have a family uh, that cares. And so, you know, we did what they do at an intervention, or I should say they did what people do at an intervention, which is they, we sat in the room and they said, you know, we think there's something wrong with you. you you're, you, you're not yourself. And uh, here's what we think you should do. And if you don't, there's going to be some consequences. And so I agreed to that I uh, went into treatment, and with just one little uh, blip a few months in, I've stayed sober ever since. I, I've celebrated 30 years of sobriety earlier this year. Wow, congratulations. Well, I don't really think people should be congratulated for not doing something that's harmful to them. <laughs> but, but, but it couldn't uh, have been easy. Well, it wasn't easy uh, in the beginning. Over time, it's just become second nature. And, um, uh, you know, I, but I say to other people that are, you know, that are struggling with this, I'm like, you know, it's like hitting yourself in the head with a hammer, man. You just need to stop hitting yourself in the head with a hammer. And once you stop, I don't really call that any kind of uh, <laughs> a congratulatory uh, situation. It's just, <laughs> somewhat common sense but 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 uh, but someone who is uh, in the throes of 
addiction or alcoholism is is not rational. You know, it's right. it's a craving and it's not rational, and you can't really fight it with ration and reason. You can't reason with it. It doesn't make any sense. People do things that are that are against their own interests, that are harmful to them. And that's exactly what I was doing. So uh, the point of the of me bringing this up is that it really did uh, change my outlook. And I felt like, well, for one thing, my wife got rid of me. So <laughs> uh, justifiably. So basically, there I was, I was 33 years old. I didn't have any real obligations or uh, didn't, ha didn't have a house, didn't have a wife, didn't have any kids. <laughs> so I was able to say, what is it I really want to do that I would like to do and get up in the morning and do instead of doing what I don't like to do? And, uh, and I said, well, I've always loved music. That's the thing I've wanted to do. That's, that's what I've always spent my time and energy on if I ever had any free time and energy. And I'm going to do that. And so I just started saying, by then I'd heard of an entertainment lawyer. I knew what they were. And there was a couple of them in Atlanta. And so I started going to seminars. I started, you know, I, uh, talking to some of my music musician friends and contacts. And then I just started, just started saying I'm an entertainment lawyer, you know, and, <laughs> and then eventually I got some clients and, and then I really was an entertainment lawyer. Did you have an idea what you wanted that to be? Well, uh, I, I just knew I wanted to be around music. I wanted to work in music. Um, and I wanted to represent artists. And so that's what started happening. As I got further into it, I was representing an artist. And actually, it was Henry Butler, the great piano player from New Orleans, who mm -hmm. was coincidentally blind yes uh and a and he asked me to manage him uh and so i hadn't really thought of that before this was around 95 96 i hadn't really thought of that before but i said yeah let me, let's that that sounds interesting let's let's do that and so so you know in the beginning I was what I would call a real lawyer, 100%. Then I was like, you know, starting to transition into being an entertainment lawyer. Right. And then I became a manager slash entertainment lawyer. And then over the last 25 years, uh, the lawyer part has almost dwindled to nothing simply because I'm too busy as a manager and I, and I like it better than I like the lawyering part, but I still have a couple of people that I help out as a lawyer. I still keep my law license because it's a lot easier to keep it than it is to lose it and get it back. So I did want to say Henry Butler, what a, what a special human being he was. Oh yeah. Henry was, Henry was, uh, was an amazing, uh, first of all, an amazing musician. Mm -hmm. Um, but he was also a really interesting guy, uh, very uh, learned, had a couple of degrees and um, was an intellectual, deep thinker kind of guy. He was also a difficult management client, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> but that was good. I mean, I, I learned uh, very early on uh, how to deal with uh, how to deal with that uh, part of it. I mean, artists are not normal people most of the time. And so you have to meet them on their turf and, and, and deal with their business 
in ways that would be unusual for if you were just dealing with a, you know, quote, business person. Right. As an entertainment lawyer, I presume the, the function initially was, or, or you would do a lot of contractual negotiations and, and deal with contracts, correct? Correct. And, you know, in the 90s, it was still uh, pre-internet. So there was, you know, a lot of record deals around, uh, you know, the uh, CD era was in full effect. So um, record deals, publishing deals, you know, contracts uh, of all sorts were the primary thing that an entertainment lawyer would do. That's correct. So as, when you became a manager, what did you know about managing and how did you learn that? Or what, what idea did you have was a manager's role to what it actually happened to be? Well, I guess my idea was it was an entertainment lawyer plus, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, like an entertainment lawyer who did more. And I think, you know, I, I, when, you do the, when you do the record deal um, for the client, you, you do the deal and then the client goes away and you might not talk to them again for six months or something while, you know, they made, they made their record deal. Now they're going to go make their record, you know? And I was always very interested in, wait a minute, I'd like to, I'd like to know what's going on there. I mean, where's this record going to be made? Who, where are the songs coming from? Who, who's the producer? Um, what record label is it going to, you know, well, I, I guess we knew what record label is going to come out on cause we had a record deal, but, right. uh, but, but those kind of questions of the creative process, you know, uh, that started to really interest me. And so that's what I learned, uh, you know, was, was a big part of management was, you know, steering the client, you know, in or helping the client steer themselves uh, into, you know, the right uh, songs, the right uh, studio, the right producer, the right record label, and also just as far as their image. And I remember t telling Henry Butler, Henry just a lot of times used to wear like t-shirts and stuff like that to the gig. And I was like, Henry, you, you should dress up, man. I mean, you're a distinguished guy. And, and, uh, and so anyway, we, we hired a young woman who went and took him clothes shopping and ever since then, Henry was kind of a flamboyant dresser. You know, I don't know if you remember that at all. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. He always dressed up. And that, I think it was a great thing for his image. You know, um, it, it, it fit it fit him. You know, it wasn't something being uh, plastered onto him that wasn't real. It right. was more of bringing the Henry out of Henry, you know, because like I said, he was a sophisticated guy. He certainly was. Um, he being your first client. Blind Ambition Management was that the first? Was that the name of the company at that point? No, uh, I actually managed a few other people uh, in addition to Henry between say ninety five, ninety six, and two thousand. Uh, and then in two thousand, I had done some legal work for the Blind Boys of Alabama, and um, one day Clarence Fountain who was the leader of the group at that time, asked me uh, if I'd be their manager. And they had been without a manager for a couple of years, I think. And so I said yes to that. And that was the year 2000, 20 years ago. And so that was the origination of blind emission management. It just happened to be a coincidence that my first management client was blind. And, and then the blind boys also were obviously uh, not sighted. 
I, I find the name somewhat ironic to have a management company called Blind Ambition. Define, define Blind Ambition to me. What does it mean? Well, to you? you know, it's it's a bit of a phrase, but it's also, um, you know, I mean, I think the phrase means that you're extremely ambitious, uh, that you uh, will charge uh, blindly into uh, working hard for your client. At least that's what I I would like the name to mean in our context. You know? Okay, well, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about managing and how. I mean, it sounds like you've always been a music fan. Um, and even though you didn't play, I know from reading about you that you've you suggested a lot of different creative ideas, especially for the Blind Boys of Alabama, that you come up with ideas that, and you present to them, you know, possible things that they can possibly do. Where does that come from, That those ideas that, um, that you're inspired by, that you present to your clients? Well, I think it's a combination of things. One is being an educated listener, as I said before. Uh, one is understanding who the client's fans are mm -hmm. uh, and what they might find interesting. And, uh, you know, the other thing is understanding the artist. And, that, and that's probably the, the main thing is understanding the artist. You know, what what is what can the artist explore that would be interesting for them and interesting for their audience? Uh, and I, and I say that early on, uh, there was another guy, particularly with the blind boys by the name of Chris Goldsmith, who was their longtime agent who came up with this idea of putting them in a different setting, uh, kind of a roots music super group, uh, which included David Lindley, Charlie Musselwhite and John Hammond. And. Uh, and doing uh, some interesting material, which included covers of people like Prince and Rolling Stones and Tom Waits. Right. And that became the Spirit of the Century album, which was released in 2000 and became the Blind Boy's first Grammy-winning record. But uh, my point is that Chris Goldsmith was a guy who, who sort of modeled that for me. I saw him doing that, and, and that particular instance was a home run and also John Shalou who produced that album Chris was like an unnamed co-conspirator on that record he was <laughs> he was named as executive producer but he was he was really a a co-producer and uh, there was a string of of albums that that the two of them collaborated on and you know and over that time I got to know my clients better you know so uh, I was able to see directions that they might go in that they might be interested in etc and particularly again for the blind boys that that culminated with this uh most recent uh release that they did under their own name uh which was called almost home and in that uh situation i could see that the story of the blind boys had never truly been told on on uh, a recording right and at that time clarence fountain was still living and jimmy carter who's still uh with the band those were the two original members and so i thought well we should get their reminiscences uh on video uh not so much telling us what happened then and what happened next but their feelings uh their emotions and 
and and what the things some of the things that they had encountered over their you know long lives and so i i sat down with each of them and and did that and we boiled those uh sessions those interview sessions down into 30 minute clips for each guy and sent those around to a bunch of songwriters and said you know would you be interested in writing songs based on the blind boys story uh, from the two original members right and so we got great response from a, a bunch of you know interesting songwriters and that became the almost home record i mean i just think that that whole concept of you thinking let's interview them have them tell the story and then seek out songwriters to write about it i just think that's just brilliant like i you well, know i don't know where things like that come from well i appreciate that i mean i again it was a about, uh, first of all, recognizing that, you know, uh, Clarence and Jimmy wouldn't be around forever. And I wanted to preserve that. And secondly, they aren't particularly songwriters themselves, but over the years, they've made a lot of, of friends with songwriters. And so we had songs on that record from Valerie June. We had songs from North Mississippi All-Stars. We had songs from uh, Mark Cohn and John Leventhal. Uh, we had one song is from the guys in the band, another guy, Phil Cook, who's like a young, you know, roots, uh, music guy, just a bunch of really interesting people. Uh, yeah. Randall Bramlett, who's a, a Southern, uh, singer songwriter guy. He wrote the title track. So it, you know, that it really turned out well. And basically what we did, we collected almost 50 song submissions from various writers and then, um, just mostly because of time, we ended up doing four different sessions uh, in four different cities, three songs each, and with four different producers. And so I just would I would give the producers the whole batch of songs and say, pick three for your session. <laughs> and so that's how it, that's how it all came out. Wow. When you took them on as a client, could you have imagined what they are today? I mean, I know that they're legendary and I know that the history is amazing, but in the world of music, they're in a place that's not like anybody else, in my opinion. It's, would I be correct to assume that? I'd like to think so. I mean, uh, as my dad used to say, uh, they may not be in a Klaus by themselves, but it doesn't take long to call the roll. <laughs> uh in the sense that they're doing something that that very few people do, you know, right. there's there's traces of that around. Uh, most of it's in the black church, you know. Uh, but as far as doing what they do, no, nah, I mean it's it's a unique situation, and that's one of the things I love about it. Uh, I, I mean, I've seen hundreds of shows, and I still get a thrill at the show uh, every time. And um, you know, they're. Uh, uh, but, but, you know, to answer your question, no, I couldn't have foreseen any of this. Um, I, it's like, it's like, it's like going back to the, to the REM situation. I couldn't have foreseen when I went and saw them in a dingy club with 30 <laughs> people, I never thought they'd be playing in arenas. And when I started, you know, working with the blind boys, I knew I loved them. I knew I loved what they were doing. I knew it had a lot of meaning to me. But I never thought they'd be on the Grammy telecast or play at the White House or win a bunch of Grammys and, you know, uh, play, sell out the Fillmore and play at uh, Royal Albert Hall and, you know, things like that, man. It's just like, wow, I, 
I don't really have, uh, you know, when I pass away, man, I've exceeded my dreams because I didn't even have these dreams. <laughs> you know, I, I just wanted to do, to work, do good work for these guys and, and let the world know about them. What do you think it is about you that um, Clarence approached you to become their manager or Henry Butler wanted you to become his manager? Like, what is it? What quality do you possess that you think attracted them to make that offer to you? Uh, I would like to think it was uh, the aspect of a servant mentality. Uh, I want to be of service. Uh, I want to be of service to my clients. And in general, I want to be in, of service, you know, to my family, to my community, et cetera. Uh, but hopefully that's uh, what they saw that, you know, I was a person who, you know, A, was competent, uh, had some knowledge about, you know, the things I need to have knowledge about, like contracts, et cetera. Right. Uh, B, uh, and this is one of uh, my mantras for the Blind Ambition team is, passionate attention to detail. Uh, and so I've, you know, I, you know, a lot of times you find very creative people, but they're not great with the details. So I'd, I'd like to think we're good with the details. And uh, so maybe that's something else they saw. And then, and then you know, o overarching all of that to see that I would do what was in their best interest. You know, and I, and again, with both of those people you mentioned, I had pre-existing relationships as their attorney. Right. So perhaps they saw as that as their attorney, I was trying to put them first and their and their career first and doing what's best for their career and not, you know, not, nothing else. How easy was it? So when you went through your personal struggles and you said, I'm not happy to the point where you decided to change your life and pursue something very different. Was there a point where you, you realized, you know, this this is the path that I, I'm happy to be on? Yeah. I, mean, I can't imagine it being easy to change career at 33 and, and do something different. So I presume that a lot of hard work went into it. And I, I don't know if you ever doubted what you did or questioned what you did. Well, again, I didn't have I didn't have a lot to lose. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is this is one of the things about uh, about recovery. Uh, about being sober is most people don't stop when they should stop. They go beyond that point. They go to the point of losing things, you know, uh, losing family, losing their, you know, I mean, I, I was uh, definitely in jeopardy of losing my license to practice law. Um, and so a lot of people lose a lot of things before they stop, if they do stop. Right. Uh, and so, um, you know, when you, when you, when you, when you get to that point, you're like, I don't have a lot. Like I said, I didn't, I didn't have a wife. I didn't have any kids. I didn't have any money. I didn't really have anything. So I didn't have much to lose. It wasn't like I, I, there was a lot of pressure on me. I was just like, well, I guess I'll do this because this is what I want to do. There was just something in me that said, you know, this is something that I think I could wake up in the morning and be excited about as opposed to waking up and going, oh, no, another day, you know. Right. And I can't I can't imagine it, it happened very quickly. But was there a moment where you where you realized that you had success with the blind boys or whoever or that just in general that you were happy about what you're doing, that you woke up in the morning thinking, 
wow, this is amazing. That my, This is my life. Well, I do remember thinking one time, because I was always thinking, wow, I'm just trying to learn here, and, and everybody knows more than me, and blah, blah, blah. And then I remember one day thinking, I know as much as any of these people. <laughs> <laughs> I know I know the, the, the book stuff, and I know the... Uh, you know, the, the stuff you can't teach, you know, how to handle people and, and how to, uh, approach the situation, you know? So I was like, and at that point I just had a lot of confidence that, you know, uh, I was doing the right thing and that I was pretty good at it. You know, the, the fact that so many artists love to work with the blind boys of Alabama, people like Ben Harper or Mark Cohen or Peter Gabriel, what do you think it is? Is it just that they're just that special that people are attracted to them? Well, it's it's a couple of things. I mean, I mean, number one, it's the authenticity. Mm-hmm. I mean, these. I remember one time we went to uh, Ireland. We were in Dublin, and the newspaper had a little questionnaire, and it was a standard questions that they asked these uh, uh, musicians that were coming to town. And one of the questions was, what's the first album that you owned? And Clarence Fountain said, it wasn't no albums, it was 78s. <laughs> I'm like, that's going a long way back, man. I mean, that's going back to the source. That's mm. before there was rock and roll. That was before there was only blues and gospel. You know, it was the, it was the, the 30s and 40s, man. I mean, that's, that's some kind of stuff that, you know, I, I don't care... And it's surprising the um, sometimes the most pop type of musicians are the ones that are most interested in the in the in the the depth and authenticity of someone like the Blind Boys. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but definitely people like you mentioned Tom Petty. Man, he took the Blind Boys on three different tours. Wow. Um, I mean, he is just a guy who loved like the real stuff. You know? Yeah. And um, uh, so I, I think, and that's been, that's been one thing I found out pretty early on with the blind boys was we've never been able to offer these big names, any kind of money, like what they're used to making. but it's the chance to work with, with these guys and connect with something that's really deep musically that we, that, that the blind boys can offer, you know, mm-hmm. and that means more to most of these guys than money. They don't need money as bad as they want something that will be kind of heart, uh, you know, heart filling. Right. I, you know, I remember interviewing Jimmy Carter and him talking about the tough times and eating lots of bologna sandwiches mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and to see where they are today. It's pretty amazing. But, you know, to have gone through that and to have played for so many years, you know, that that's their music has been in their lives for decades. It's, well, it's that's pretty- that's one of the reasons that I wanted to do that almost home record. You know, it's just like, man, this is a story that yeah, it's a rare story. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a, I mean, uh, and not only that, not just having lived that long and seen so much and 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 been a part of so much music, but when you think about where they came from, you know, right. uh, and so. Yeah, this is a, you know, we've we've had multiple uh, explorations and opportunities on movies, plays, books, but you know, uh, as you may as you may be aware, uh, probably one in twenty of those works out. So 
Right. We're still looking, but I think the story <laughs> is there and it's a great story. And hopefully that's something I'll get to do before it's all over is figure out a way to have that story told in a, in, in one of those ways. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing story. I, I wonder how, how um, you pick your roster, obviously in, in terms of Henry Butler and Blind Boys, they, they chose you, but you have a, a really impressive roster. How does, how does that happen? How do you go about choosing who you would decide to work with? Well, it's a combination. I mean, uh, people sometimes, I mean, there's a word of mouth and we get, you know, inquiries and calls from people about I'm looking for a manager. And then there's people that, you know, that, that we pursue. Um, uh, and I, I think the, probably the best example of that is William Bell. Uh, right. William Bell had not had a manager since the seventies, I don't think. And, um, he has his own studio, his own record label, and he writes and produces for other artists and on his record label is, you know, mostly other artists. So he was perfectly happy doing what he was doing, but I met him and said, you know, man, the world needs to hear from William Bell, you know? And what are you, what are you doing? And he's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm writing and producing for other people. I got my record label, their records come out on my label and I got my studio. And I was like, yeah, but what about you? What about, you know, do you, I mean, don't you have something to say? And he goes, oh, I think I still have something to say. I said, well, we need to figure out a way for you to say that. And anyway, point being, it took me like three years to convince William Bell to let, <laughs> to let me manage him. Um, but I just thought he is a he is a total American treasure. Mm-hmm. Um, he is the classiest guy I've ever managed. He's uh, immensely talented and and a and a, and a with a great history and a and a great gentleman, you know. So anyway, it it took a long time to convince him, and then it took a long time to convince him to make a record with somebody else, which. I finally did, and uh, that record came out on the Revive Stacks label under Concord, and it won a Grammy for Best Americana Album. So What a great album. And it was a great album, right? Yeah. I mean, it's the kind of album I like to listen to. So, <laughs> so, uh, so you know, that was just a pursuit. <laughs> I can't um, imagine how many people approach you. Because when I talk to musicians, often they say, I need a good agent, I need a good management. But very yeah. few people, especially... In, in the roots music business, there are very few people have management, probably because I, I don't know if it's they they generate enough income to make it worthwhile or not. But I know so many people are seeking good management and that just it doesn't seem to be very many. Well, you know, this is this is the thing is as now now that I'm you know, now that I'm running a company that has five employees and ten clients and all this stuff. Yes, uh, you know, the, the, the economics of it come into play. And uh, sometimes I like something, but, you know, we can't really afford to take it on. Right. Um, there are other times where I just like something so much, I say, I don't care. You know, it's like Big Band of Brothers. I don't know if we'll ever make a penny on Big Band of Brothers, but it's cool. And I like it. <laughs> okay, so how often would you do something 
Because it's cool. I mean, because I presume you're a businessman. You have right. to think about economics. You have to think about making money. But obviously, you also get involved in projects that might not make money. Right. How does that happen? Well, I mean, you got to balance those, man. You know, it's it's a cost-benefit analysis. And, and I've told my team before, you know, look, if, if a client brings in 40% of your money, you, you need to spend 40% of your time on that client, you right. know? That's just the that's just the way it is. I mean, every musician would like to bring in two percent of your money and give and let you give him a hundred percent of your time. <laughs> that's how they think, you know. Right. Uh, and who wouldn't, you know? I I'd like that too, you know. But um, so you know, I I try to manage the expectations of anybody we're talking to or anybody we're signing to say, you know. We're, we're going to do everything we can, and we have a great team that has a lot of experience, but, you know, we have other clients. So, you know, everybody needs to understand that. And just from an economic point of view, I cannot employ five people if, if the clients aren't bringing in income, which, by the way, they're not right now because we're in the midst of our COVID shutdown. How often are you talking to your clients these days? Um... Pretty often, you know, uh, we have, b because, you know, we have uh, a team, uh, each client has a, a point person that, that, you know, is their uh, person for every day and day-to-day uh, -day type of issues. Right. So uh, there's a couple that I deal with directly, um, primarily Blind Boys and William, but... Um, I'm involved with all the others, but that but we have people on the team who are speaking to them more often. Uh, but I can say that I've spoken to pretty much everybody on the roster within the last month, you know, uh, you know, face to face. So. So I, I don't want to ask about what you think is going to happen or yeah, it's a crazy time. But um, can I ask you, is there is there anything positive that has come out of this can you think of anything that's that surprised you that might be positive yes i think so i mean first of all i think i mentioned to you before we started i've been home for seven weeks now and my wife pointed out that's the longest i've been home in the 15 years we've been married so <laughs> so from a personal point of view to be able to get into a rhythm in my own house and spend time with my wife and my dog it's been great I've loved that. Uh, and then we have different clients making use of this time in different ways. Uh, yeah. Some of them, uh, our band Over the Rhine has just said, you know, this is the first time in years we've gotten off the treadmill. And so everything's quiet and we can just go really deep and focus and write some songs, uh, et cetera. So I think that's been great for them and that's one reaction that we've seen um another uh couple of clients that we work with uh paul thorne and john cleary they've both been uh doing live streams uh paul said he just wanted to do three so he's done three so far but he might do more uh now that this thing keeps dragging on uh cleary is doing uh regularly tuesdays and thursdays and he's been doing it now for since mid-march so you know, different approaches for different artists. But I, you know, I, I think it's a reset in a way. And, uh, 
and just having some some quiet and some downtime and some introspection time for everybody uh, is is positive because normally we're on a treadmill and we're just running all the time, my, you know, both myself and and the artists. I can imagine. I have to wrap this up, but can I ask you one question? My sure. final question. Um, tell me what's the greatest thing you've learned from this experience of saying, I think I want to change my life to, you know, becoming a Grammy, multi-Grammy winner and all the things that you've done and experienced. What's the greatest thing that you, that you have learned from taking this path? Well, I, I don't want to say anything as trite as follow your passion because... You see a lot of people on American Idol who follow their passion, but they don't have the talent. You know? uh, I mean, uh, on the one hand, yes, I, I only, I, I, I need to have something that, that I can get up in the morning and be excited about doing. On the other hand, this is a grind, man. I've never met a job that wasn't a grind, mm-hmm. and people look from the outside, they think it's easy, they think it's glamorous. No, I'm working 12, 14 hours a day, mostly at my computer. I'm traveling a lot, which, you know, is glamorous for about 10 minutes, and then it sucks. And uh, so there's a lot of grind involved here. But, you know, if, if what you're doing, if you feel like what you're doing is important, and meaningful, then the grind becomes worth it. If what you're doing is not important and meaningful, then the grind is just a grind, you know, mm-hmm. but there's no option that I know of that's important and meaningful and no grind. <laughs> you right. know? Uh, and I think a lot of young people and probably even myself when I was young thought I'd like that option, but I I'm, I'm not aware of that option anymore. <laughs> so I would say if, you know, if there's something you really want to do, do it, but you have to work at it. And uh, you're going to have to put in a lot of hours into non-glamorous things uh, in order to enjoy some, some exciting things. Right. Well said. Thank you so much for doing this. You have been, I've, I met you many years ago. You have been very supportive of what I do for, for a long time. And I've always appreciated that. And I've always wanted to talk to you. So thank you for taking the time to do this. Well, thank you, Mako. I mean, I, I've always uh, liked what you have done, and I think uh, what you have done has been, <clears throat> you know, I mean, you obviously are interested in a lot of the same music that I'm interested in, and and you have really done a great job of, of getting, you know, that out there, perpetuating that, and, you know, bringing it to people's attention, um, because, you know, I mean, that's one thing about, about this slowdown is people can actually pay attention to some stuff now, but normally things are going by so fast that you have to grab people's attention. So you've been able to do that, and that's much appreciated. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for doing this. All right. Thank you, Marco. Thank you.